0: I've known Brett since he came to Central as a Master of Divinity student many years ago, and uh, was, you're originally from Colorado, is that correct? Correct. Uh, graduated from Pillsbury, and then came up to Central Seminary, and he did something that uh, no student has done for many years at Central Seminary. He finished his Master of Divinity degree in three years. And I asked him, why did you finish in three years? Nobody finishes in three years. And he said, I was told. You go to Bible college for four years, you go to seminary for three years, and you go out in the ministry. And that's exactly what Brett did. And then he pastored for a number of years in Austin, Minnesota, where Dan Milkey is now. Um, Dan is married to one of the sister of one of the members of our church. So uh, we have a, a familial relationship there. Uh, so, Brett is now the provost at Central Seminary uh, back in the cities, and you can ask him over dinner what a provost does. I'm sure uh, he, he can enlighten you. But at this time, Brett, I'll get out of the way. Say hello to your wife, Naomi, for us. It's nice to have your son, Luke, here with us today. Please come and preach and uh, take as much time as you'd like.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I bring you certain and hap- and hopeful greetings from your brothers and sisters at Central Seminary and the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you could open your Bibles with me this morning to the 13th Psalm. Psalm number 13. I'll remind you that the Psalms are not made up of chapters. They're independent units themselves. Psalm 13. This is a Psalm of David. Before we begin this morning, I ask that we once again bow in prayer and seek His face. Let us pray. Our God in heaven, we worship You this morning again. Hopeful hearts sing, and they know that there is a God in heaven who does whatever He pleases. And Lord, though there are many now in this world, as there always have been, who mock, who doubt, who revile, we know that you are on the throne this morning. And so here this Lord's Day, we magnify your name, O Father. We glorify your name, O Son. We exalt you, O Spirit. Three in one. Lord, I ask for grace and help this morning as we seek your word, your revelation recorded long ago through your servant. May he speak to us now. And certainly, Lord, may you speak through him. I ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. What do you do when God makes no sense? Now certainly if you work at a seminary, as do I, that seems like an academic endeavor. We call that theodicy, right? The problem of evil. And certainly there have been many over history who have either attempted, sadly in vain, or at least realized that this is a question that sometimes is unanswerable. However, it's one thing to have the questions in the halls of academia, right? To seek and inquire the metaphysical realities of God. It's certainly an entirely another thing to experience that through something in your life, something real, something raw, something intimate. And here in this psalm, we have someone who was called a friend of God, who experienced heartache and pain through his soul and in the depths of his soul and being, he understood what it was to ask the question, not simply in metaphysics, but within oneself, what do I do when God makes no sense. Um, um, I have three kids, and they're growing up certainly before my very eyes. My wife and I last week celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary, so I have a 16-year-old daughter, I have a 13-year-old daughter, and an 11-year-old son who's here with me this morning. He enjoys when we go out on adventures on Sunday morning, and we drive around Minnesota, to get the minister in churches. Long ago, my middle daughter, who's now 13, was... Very sick. She was quite ill when she was three and four years old. She was losing weight rapidly and he couldn't see any health in her. And we went to a myriad of doctors and physicians and specialists who, who had all different ideas of her health. She was ran through all of the tests and all the rigmarole. Certainly this was even at Mayo And no one seemed to understand what was going on. When she was five years old, she was starting to, um, to die before our very eyes. And her organs were slowly shutting down. And I remember one morning lifting her little body in my hands. She could hardly open her eyes and she said, Daddy, I'm so very, very tired. And my wife called the doctor yet again. Something is wrong. And I told my wife, you tell the doctor, either they see us this morning or I will kick down the door. And Let me tell you, as a father, man, you know I wasn't being that facetious. So finally, we saw a pediatrician who took one look and said, has your daughter ever been tested for diabetes? Now this never occurred because we didn't have it in the family. And yet, a simple, small, little prick of the finger revealed that she was a type 1 diabetic and she was in ketoacidosis. Um, her very blood was acidic and shutting down her organs. She was rushed to the pediatric ICU at Mayo. And I remember that night, so many hours spent on my knees in the pediatric ICU when doctors would visit me and say, Mr. Williams, there's no way we can guarantee you that she will see the morning. Let me tell you, all of the books that I have read and all of the inquiries I have made in academia meant nothing that night when my daughter's life hung in God's hands. Yet, I was reminded that her life as all of ours is always in His hands. But the question remains, what do we do when God makes no sense? I think here we see this... Psalm. As we read this morning, this is a short psalm. Often, somewhat sadly, this is a lesser known psalm of David. And probably, I think that's maybe for two reasons. Number one, we're not sure the specific, I'm going to say context that this is in. We think it could be either when David is running from Saul as was his lot for many years, or it could be when David was escaping the insurrection led by his son, Absalom. We're not sure exactly, certainly when this was written. Number two, this is a short psalm, and you know David is a wonderful poet. He's a marvelous hymnist. He can rhyme in Hebrew, not, not certainly through sound and syllables like we do, but usually through things such as, I'll say, parallelism and otherwise. This psalm seems to lack a lot of the flow, a lot of the refinement that we're used to seeing in David. Why? I believe it's because David was experiencing hurt and pain through and through his affections, deep within his soul. And all of us, when we hurt that bad, when we don't understand what or why God is doing things, this is exactly what happens. And so David has this very simple yet very apropos psalm from the heart. I think we could say maybe in this day and age, using a colloquialism, from the gut, if you will. So, he begins with a series of questions. There are four of them. Let's read these this morning. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me how long must i take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day how long shall my enemies be exalted over me isn't this interesting that instead of asking god why which is usually what we do here david is asking him how long i think this is an insight into david's mind his theology he knows that sometimes you don't see or know what God says or is doing. Now, put yourself in David's shoes, as it were. He's used to hearing from God, either through a prophet or through another means of special revelation. But here it seems that God has gone silent. So David asks these four very direct questions. Questions: How long? It's just like you and I when going through something that's hard or painful, or we question God. It's usually a "How long? When will this stop? When will it end? When will my pain then somehow become rejoicing?" How long? This morning, after um, um, after my church's, I'll say service up at Fourth Baptist in Minneapolis. My wife and two daughters are going to make the drive to. I think it's Northfield, Minnesota, where my wife has an aunt who's in hospice. Very godly woman. A wonderful woman. She has served her family, her husband, her church for decades and decades. She would be a paragon of, I think, Christian virtue. And recently she found out that she has aggressive cancer of the bone. She's in hospice and dying a very painful death. So my wife and daughter will go and minister. They're planning to take scripture and sing hymns, etc. But you ask the question, how long? Now let's look at these. I want to exegete um, these four questions a little bit more. Look at number one. How long, O Lord, what? Will you forget me forever? This is the idea of a parent forgetting their child. Perhaps you can remember um, back when you were a child, was there ever a time your mom and dad forgot you? I remember one time my mother forgot to pick me up from soccer practice. So I sat in a park for an hour. And I was sure that they had abandoned me and moved. right, And that my family had just left me there. Now you say, yes. That's because you were a child and immature, right? However, do you remember the feeling of being alone, of being forgotten? How isolated you feel. Here, I think David is asking this in a specific way. How long will you what? Will you forget me? David knows he's a child of the Most High. He has a covenant relationship with the God of Israel. It seems that his very father... has forgotten him. That reminds me of the words, certainly of our Lord, as he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is more than just poetry. This is really an idea of a child who is thinking their father has forgot them. That is scary. That is hard. I think David is so wrapped up in the situation that he finds himself. He believes that God has forgotten him in the present. He then fears that he will forget him in the future. How long? Now, number two. How long will you hide your face from me? That. Simple phrase, hiding your face, actually has an ID in the Old Testament that many of you are familiar with. Because remember, when God would show his face, he could not do that in a realistic sense. However, in a poetic sense, that means he's revealing himself to his people. You think of the priestly blessing in Numbers 6. It says this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift Lift up his, your English will say, I think, countenance. But in Hebrew, that's still the idea of his face to or upon you. The idea of God shining his face on his people means there's an intimate and covenant relationship. And here, look at David. He is now saying that God seems to be hiding his face. This has to be interpreted as abandonment. I honestly think that David now feels this abandonment. He's saying, God, not only do I think you have then forgotten me, but how long will your face be against me and turn then away? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now the third one. How long must I take counsel within my soul? This is another interesting Uh, question because again I think this is key in understanding David's mind and heart. Remember David certainly as a king was used to having counselors who some of whom were actual men of God and prophets like Nathan. He was then surrounded by sage um, uh, wise people who were counselors when he would have an issue, whether it's in politics or economics or warfare. He would surround himself with counsel. And here it seems like he's feeling all alone. And he says, now I have to seek what? Counsel in myself. I think this is reflective of he doesn't have anyone around him. But more so, I think this is reflective of saying, God, you seem to not be revealing yourself to me. How long, how long? Now, this one, he adds a little couplet here and he says, And have sorrow in my heart all the day. The seat of his very emotion, his soul itself is hurting. I don't know, maybe it's cancer. Um, Perhaps it's abandonment or perhaps it's a loss of job or security. But maybe this morning you are hurting. And all the books in theology seem to be aloof. And you, like David, are asking the question, How long, O Lord? This is real. This is raw. Now the fourth one. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Again, these are more than just simple words and phrases. He's... Asking a question of the most high, because remember, David had a covenant with God, a special covenant. He knew that he was the chosen. He was to be king or he was the king, depending on the context here. He felt the oil that had anointed his head as a young man when he was chosen among his brothers, even though he was the least of them. He remembered the covenant. And he knew that he was to be exalted. He was to be victorious. He was a man of war. He defeated his enemies. Yet here he's saying, how long shall my enemy now be exalted over me? Because in his mind, it appears that the script has been flipped. It seems like the covenant that Yahweh had, the the intimate relationship, the guarantee, the promises were null and void? How scared he must have been. How hurt he must have been. I don't know about you, except certainly for me, this attracts me to this man, who though he was a poet, though he was a... Um, I'll say a hymn writer. Though he was a theologian, though he was a king, he felt things as I feel them. He saw things as you see them. He was a man. And he knew that we are nothing but dust. How long? If you see this psalm somewhat musically... Think of yourself singing or listening to a choral piece that seems to almost intensify as it goes on. It builds, certainly not in joy nor in excitement, but it builds in pain. Think of the movements growing and growing. This is number two. You go from the questions to the pleas. As I said, the movement is growing. And so he questions. Now he begs. And I use the word beg to share and convey the idea of he's becoming so very desperate. Now look what he says. He goes from asks to near demands. He goes from Things like inquiries to saying, "God, here I am." Look what He says: "Consider and answer me." This is verse number three. O Lord, my God. This Hebrew idea um, that we translate to "consider" is so much more intimate than that. I remember when I was younger and my children were growing. Um, I spent a lot of time in school, as alluded to. Right, And I was pastoring, I was a full-time student, I was a husband and a father. So any chance I got, I had a book. Right? I, I, I would carry books as I would walk around my neighborhood, and I, I learned to read as I walked. It's a miracle I'm alive and didn't get hit by a bus. Right, But I remember one time at the park with my kids, when my son was very young, my daughters were young, and I was sitting on the bench, and I was watching my kids, except I wasn't really watching my kids. I had a book, of course, and I was reading. Right? And the kids were saying, well, Daddy, Daddy, watch me. They wanted to show their physical acumen right, on the monkey bars or the swings or whatever. You know how kids do it. Daddy, look at me, look at me. Oh, okay, and I'd look up for a few seconds. Wow, great job. You stepped on something, right? And then my eyes would go back into the book that I was reading. But I remember my eldest daughter actually sat on the bench next to me. She had little hands and she took my face and she moved my face away from the book towards herself. says, Daddy, look at me. That was convicting, amen? However... This is exactly the idea that David is getting. It's more than saying, oh, think upon me, God, and consider me. He's almost grabbing the face of God, as it were, and he's moving it. Remember in the previous verses, he says that you are hiding your face, and now he's saying, look at me, God. Here and now, I want all of your attention. This is more than a ponder or a consideration. He wants intimacy. Intimacy. And answer me. Oh, like so many inquiries, this is left unanswered. Amen. Like so many Psalms, like so many issues in Scripture, whether it's with Job or Jeremiah, who had to not only record but witness the siege of Jerusalem. He recorded it in the Book of Lamentations. I understood that. That's something I think you read this morning in your prayer service. You can imagine what these men saw and felt. Or perhaps Habakkuk. And he knows as a prophet that God will use the godless to judge his chosen and he asks why. And the only answer that he receives in chapter 2 is what Paul later on sees and puts in Romans when God says, oh Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. See, These questions and inquiries that David had and asked had no answers. So what do you do when God makes no sense? Consider and answer me. He goes on, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. It sounds like poetry and certainly it is. However, I think he was being... More real or literal than that. I think he was scared for his very life. Now remember, how can the promised Messiah then come through the lineage of David if David is dead? How can God fulfill his promises then if he doesn't look after his promised now? Light up my eyes, He felt that as David felt that he was dying, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And again, he goes on. As I said, if you think of this like a musical number, it builds and builds and in, in sorrow and intensity. Verse number four, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. This is the second time in only four verses that I think he, that is David, is reminding God of the covenant He's reminding him of the covenant with Moses. And yes, even himself. That God, remember, we're supposed to be victorious. And yet it seems that I am not going to even make it. You think of what Abraham thought when God long ago said, Out of you or from you I will make a great nation. Yet, he knew how old his wife was. Can you imagine the doubts that he had? However, as Paul records, Abraham, what? He believed God and it was accounted or credited as righteousness. How long now we'll turn to the begging, the pleas. And this song builds in intensities. Yet, something happens Here in verse number 5. And it's something that's hard to see, uh, say, in your English. Now, in Hebrew, there are these markers. They're usually, um, I'll call them kind of grammatical um, um, uh, markers. We call them vavs, I should say. They're very, very common in poetry. You can speak with Dr. White afterwards if you want to know all the specifics of that. But they're very common. Here, however, they are noticeably absent. There are no vavs up until now. Yet, here at the beginning of verse number five, you have an included vav here that David, I think, very purposely sets. This is what we call a disjunctive. Because remember I said the music is building in intensity. It's seemingly going to come to a crescendo. To expect the cymbals to clash. The heartache, the pain to explode in a climax. Yet suddenly there's quiet and calm. In 1859, the German songwriter and composer Johannes Brahms actually wrote a musical score based on Psalm 13. It's on YouTube. I encourage you to look it up. It is beautiful. It was written actually as a choral, as, as a female, as a choral piece. And I think that here, I don't think Brahms understood the Hebrew necessarily. But I think he understood the tone that David was attempting. Um, Because in this chorus, you have a key change happening right here. It goes from G minor to G major. He also wants to change the speed. It goes from allegro to all of a sudden to expressivo, which means slow and expressive. I think that Brahms actually saw as he was reading this, he noticed the change and he reflects it beautifully. This is exactly what I think this man, who is called the friend of God, he has a change within his heart and his head. He doesn't necessarily change the feelings. He still Hurting. There doesn't appear that there's a change in his circumstances or context. I'm reminded of Jeremiah Lamentations in chapter 3 when he's listing all of the horrors that will happen and are happening. And he says, But this I recall into my mind. What? Your mercies are new every morning. This is exactly what David is doing. His soul has no idea Why God is allowing what he is. His heart has no idea what God is doing. Yet, here's the key. This is the lesson for this morning. He knows that God is good. So when you don't know what God is doing, rest in what you do know of God. When you don't know why, how long, when you don't know what God is doing, then rest in what you do know of God. He is good. He is faithful. He will save His people. His Son will return in glory. And He will judge the living and the dead. And those who are found in the book of life shall reign with Him forever and ever. That is what you do know of God I'm reminded this past uh, year as my eldest daughter who's 16 now is entering a phase in academics that I'm no longer to help her with her math homework you remember that parents right she's doing PSCO and I remember math I tell people I hated math that's why I got into philosophy so much easier Um, but she brought homework home this past year, and I looked at it. It was advanced algebra. Oh, do I hate advanced algebra. I'm sorry if I'm offending anyone out there who's an engineer or something like that. But this is just me being open and honest with you. I truly loathe it. But I remember years ago in school, in college, even high school, actually learning how to solve an equation in algebra. Now, in algebra, this is something I'll engage with maybe the young people. Do you try to solve for X first? No, because X is a variable. You don't know what X is. So you turn your attention to the part of equation that you do know. Now, perhaps we could refer to this, I think, theologically. We call it theodictic algebra. Hence, when you don't know the variable, when you don't know why or how long or what God is doing, rest in what you do know. The promises of Scripture that are objective, that are absolute, that are true and shall remain forever and ever. That's exactly what David is showing here. Let's read this again. Short, short, yet so full of love. But I have trusted in your stead. Fast love. Again, here's all of a sudden you expect this explosion of pain. Except instantly with that simple vob that shows a change of direction. He quiets his soul. He says, but I have trusted in your love. He doesn't say that the context is now better. He doesn't say that my situation has changed. He doesn't say that my feelings are altered or my affections now shifted. He says, I have trusted In your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So it starts with trust. He understands God's love. Even though he may not see it at the moment. And that results in joy of salvation. He knows even if God were to sovereignly choose his life to be done. There is still salvation and in that he rejoices and then the culmination i love this and this is something we even alluded to this morning i will sing to the lord why not because of the pain and not because of the problems not because of the inquiries that david had just said but because the lord has what has dealt bountifully with me now this Seems like a contradiction in David, doesn't it? So the first three or five verses, he seems to show that God hasn't been dealing bountifully with him. Yet now, he knows it so well that he even is going to sing it. Why? Because even though this man long ago had no idea what God was doing, he was putting his rest his hope, his trust in what he knew. That's good theology. He knew that God saves. He knew that Messiah would come and Messiah's name, Yeshua, means God saves. He knows that no matter what happens, no matter if the questions are answered or not, no matter if God allows you to stay in this pain for a long time, salvation lies just ahead. Hence, this reminds me of certainly what Paul says in the book of Romans. You know this very well. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, yet He gave Him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against the elect of God? For it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was the one who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, shall nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being slaughtered all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I remember the morning when my daughter was slowly regaining consciousness and I was overjoyed. Because God had spared her. Now she's even tall for her age. She's into athletics and sports. Um, But she's a type 1 diabetic, and so she lives in pain. And she lives with a lot of shots and a lot of insulin every day. And I remembered that first morning in the hospital when they had to come and keep on injecting her with insulin. She was 5 years old. She was very small for her size. As I said, her organs were shutting down, and I would hold her so hard and firmly because she would squirm and, and the shots had to go in and the blood and she would move in the pain and she would look at me and she would cry, Daddy, why, why, why are you allowing this? She even said, certainly as my wife and I had to, after several weeks in the hospital, I had to take her home and we had to administer those multiple shots every day. She would look at us and say, why are you hurting me? But there's something that happened that I'll never forget that first morning in the hospital, in the ICU, when I was holding her, and in, in walks the nurse with the needles. And as soon as my daughter became aware, she did what all five-year-olds do, and they fight, right? However, I was the one who was holding her. I was the one who was allowing the pain. I was the one making it so these doctors would poke and prod. She knew I was the one that was withholding her, that that was making her go through the pain. Yet at five years old, she did something that has still astounded me. This is exactly what David did. She would cling harder to me. Why? She had no idea why Daddy was giving her so much pain. But she did know that Daddy loves her and she did know that daddy helps her and saves her and protects her even though I was the one who was responsible for the pain she would cling even tighter to me oh may God then graciously graciously grant us the wisdom of a five-year-old and may we cling harder to him so let me remind you this morning when you don't know what god is doing rest in what you do know let's pray our god in heaven we worship you the one who allowed job to go through horrors and pain the one who allowed this very difficult and arduous aspect of david's life and the one who allows evil, yet you do not ordain it and you are not responsible for it. So when we go through hurt and pain, Lord, when we go through heartache and our little hands reach up and we grasp your face and we say, look at us, Daddy. Look at us, Abba. We know that you smile upon us through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is salvation. So I hope and pray that when we don't know what you are doing, we would rest in what we do know, that Jesus saves. I ask these things in the name of the Father, who is sovereign, who reigns upon high, the name of the Son, who has come in the flesh, who is God, very God, Light, very light, true God from true God. And the name of the Spirit who indwells us, Lord. Who illumines us, who has regenerated us. I ask these things in the name of Jesus the Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you.